AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for December 29th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Todd Wiscalis. And Todd, you're the executive director for our AT&T Security Consulting Services, and welcome to the program. Glad to have you here. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Hey, thanks, Brian. I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate that. So uh, in my role, I lead the security consulting team. So we help our, uh, our clients solve some of the more complex ch uh, challenges in information security. Mm -hmm. around uh, network level, application, data, data level, those types of things. So everything from uh, vulnerability assessments and penetration testing all the way through uh, regulatory and compliance work. All right, very good. So I'm expecting that you've seen a few things. Well, we have. <laughs> We've seen quite yeah. a bit. And, uh, and of course, you know, we, we work together as a group from time to time as uh, it's, it, it helps to collaborate on activities. And so once again, welcome and uh, thank you for joining us today. We have John Hogeboom here. Welcome, John. And uh, as usual, busy doing your security analysis activities. Yes, <laughs> nothing I can talk about right now, but yeah. Okay, very good. And uh, Stan Nurlov, welcome, Stan. Uh, thank you. It's good to have you back. I'm Brian Rexroad, and uh, what we'll do is, uh, what we're gonna do is start out and talk a little bit about some of the notable trends from 2016, and Stan, we'll go to you first. Um, what, what have you seen that uh, you see to be Notable. So I think you know, when we were doing our prediction show, we talked about like newsworthy things mm -hmm. and then like how true our predictions were. So I think like APT was one of those things that was so newsworthy mm -hmm. in years past, and but it was like laser focused on one country you mm -hmm. know, specifically. Today, you know, the APT activity is still happening. You know, maybe it's changed a little bit, but I don't hear, you know, besides another country now mm -hmm. being in the news so much, some of the other uh, players, so to speak, have been diminished in their role. Mm -hmm. And then there's emergent players. So emergent adversaries that are still under the radar. Nobody mm -hmm. is talking about them. Nobody is, you know, kind of writing articles or research papers mm -hmm. about what those guys are up to. So the thing that I've noticed in 2016 is kind of like people got tired of APT mm -hmm. and they stopped like reporting on it. That's they, absolutely a good point. Yes, yep, absolutely. And, but the activity is still there. And you know, mm -hmm. the adversaries in some ways have gotten actually even more advanced. It's actually mm -hmm. even harder to find them. They're actually getting better and better all of the time. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody says that, oh, we don't have an APT problem, it's probably that they don't know that they have an APT problem, I would say, uh, especially if they are in the wheelhouse of usually being targeted. Mm -hmm. So we still see activity from our research. Um, and it's not just specific, um, I would say, countries, mm -hmm. right? It's not only the ones that are being reported, it's all these other emerging mm -hmm. players. Um, so it's kind of the observation, you know, and it, it almost like leads into the newsworthy part of it, leads into mm -hmm. some of my uh, uh, things about 2017. Okay. Uh, so let me see if I'm summarizing this correctly. Uh, the, the activity is still out there. Definitely. Uh, but 
it hasn't been reported quite so much, and there are perhaps other actors that have uh, become a participant in this. Now, my personal observation here is I think um, what had traditionally been a significant amount of industrial espionage that type activity, I think, has curbed a little bit. My impression is that the targets are more selective you know, not perhaps not quite as obvious. You, you had mentioned that perhaps the level of sophistication has gone up, making it more difficult for activity to be discover, discovered. But the motivation is is likely a little bit different. That is, perhaps going after critical infrastructure or trying to get positioning for right. uh, what might be a disruptive right. attack or right. a disruptive type attack. And right? you know, the old techniques of detecting some of these guys, you know, the old, uh, uh, I guess they call them TTPs, mm -hmm. uh, tools techniques, uh, processes, these things are still good because uh, mm -hmm. uh, just recently uh, you know, I was analyzing a Trojan, actually, sorry, a backdoor mm -hmm. from 2012. Now I make the distinction only because when I first got out of, you know, uh, you know probably started in computers, backdoors were a big thing. You know, like you put something in there, you put a special keystroke and that gives mm -hmm. you secret backdoor access to the computer. Or you open up a network port and somebody connects in and that's the backdoor. Over time, I think the backdoor Trojan thing has gotten a little bit confused. So just the other day, I was researching a backdoor, a real backdoor that instead of beaconing out, which is where mm -hmm. I think a lot of the industry, a lot of the things that uh, the tools and the new equipment out mm -hmm. there is geared to detect, like this beaconing activity, it's actually a backdoor from like 2012 that's still active. Uh, that's still being used by a specific uh, actor set mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's probably in some way even harder to detect because it doesn't have the beaconing. So mm -hmm. some of those old techniques that were around years ago are still being used, yeah. maybe not widely being talked about. You know, in fact, uh, for this specific target, uh, uh, actor said, I couldn't find uh, much in terms of uh, articles out there or mm -hmm. any research that's available in the open source. Yeah, there are certainly circumstances where the, uh, the core security industry doesn't have visibility into the types of activities that are taking place and uh, perhaps it takes a little bit of a different vantage point. And, um, you know, some folks that are uh, in a position to be able to, to uh, publish some papers on the topic. Absolutely. All right. Todd, let's go to you. And uh, what, what do you find as uh, one of the uh, sort of interesting, notable trends from 2016? Thanks, Brian. I, I think the fact that we continue to see ransomware on the rise is, is, is of interest, right? Not only mm -hmm. because Obviously, it's a great business, right? And a lot of organizations have truly commercialized the concept of ransomware, everything from call centers and distribution methods and those types of things. But I think the key here is that the, the real target continues to be the end user, the human in the link, right? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we'll continue to see ransomware increase. We'll continue to see the malware drops increase until we get our arms around uh, getting these end users the better training and awareness and getting them to realize that they need to continue to do the right the right thing on the network, right? So I think mm -hmm. that uh, that's of interest and we'll continue to see that go in 2017. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, ransomware is one of these things where I think in prior year, 2015 in particular, I think was sort of the real evolution year for ransomware. The technology was a little bit clunky when it started out. The encryption didn't really work that well. Key right. management didn't work that well by the end of 2015. And then that, that a lot of those, I guess, kinks had been worked out of the technology. And then it was really a matter of, um, you know, execution. And, you know, the, uh, the spamming campaigns of ransomware were just kind of through the roof through the middle of 2016. It was, uh, it was actually almost astonishing how much 
ransomware was being sent to different organizations. And um, that's, uh, you know, that is certainly one of these things. So, Todd, what are your thoughts about sort of the targeted events that had taken place over the last year? Yeah, well, that's great, right? So I think you're going to see certain verticals continue to be heavily targeted, especially the healthcare space. They got very sensitive information, right? It's, it, it, the requirement to be timely and access to that information is critical. They continue mm-hmm. to unfortunately not have the funds to spend on information security. So uh, verticals like that continue to be a, a, a pretty uh, hot target uh, outside of the general consumer population. I agree with you. I agree with you. So uh, at, uh, next item here, I think I'll, I'll go ahead and address it. You know, one of my observations here has actually been sort of a good trend. Uh, a lot of folks have been, you know, predicting for years that mobile malware is going to, you know, take off in the next year. And it really hasn't taken off. Now, there's certainly mobile malware that's out there. There have been apps that have gotten into even mainstream markets and had malicious intent associated with it. But ultimately, I think the the ecosystem kind of protects itself. That is, the uh, mainstream markets won these mainstream markets, once these problems are identified, the applications get pulled off. There's even, um, you know, a, a means to sometimes pull the malicious apps from devices to be able to, uh, to protect the end users. It just really hasn't taken off the way a lot of folks had predicted. I think the one exception is sort of the, perhaps the APT environment where, you know, the sort of thing in spy movies, the really sophisticated things that don't get broad uh, distribution, perhaps they're there and folks don't even know about it. Not even the researchers have found exposure to it, very selective where it's been, uh, where it exists. I mean, it's not as if mobile devices are completely impervious to security threats, but for the most part, it hasn't hit the mainstream. Uh, no, I would agree with your comments about the ecosystem uh, taking care of itself for the most part with mobile malware, as long as you don't really sideload or jailbreak your phone, you know, that's mostly where Mm -hmm. we tend to see infections on, you know, consumer mobile devices. Um, And then the nation state angle, you know, I've actually, I don't think I've ever seen one on a mobile device, but um, those types of scenarios are probably few and far between. They're so targeted and small that we would never, you know, it's not targeting the mass population. Mm -hmm. So. I think, you know, to, to, the, to the point of, you know, side-loading or jailbreaking your phone, those are not typically something that a normal consumer is going to do. So I think that mm-hmm. we're, we stay a little bit safer in that spot, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as that becomes pretty easy, I'm sure that we'll have, uh, we'll have an explosion of mobile malware out there. Yeah. I, you know, I think the, the real, and I don't know if this is a coincidence or if it's by design, but the folks that really need the help in protecting themselves are the ones that are going to tend to gravitate directly to the mainstream app markets. It's the most convenient way to do things. Right. And I think that was the real magical occurrence that helped them to uh, stay well protected. So keep it that way. Keep it that way and perhaps <laughs> even improve on it. Yeah, very good point, Todd. So, John, you're sitting at the, uh, on the end of the couch here beside the 500-pound gorilla. Yes. And so... Maybe you can well, uh, so we this one and then take. I us mean, I almost this. feel like we should say that we told you so, because <laughs> we've been talking about these security camera DVRs and other embedded devices yeah. for at least a couple of years, I think. Yeah, back to 2014. Um, that we were seeing them get compromised and you know be recruited into these botnets like Light mm-hmm. Hydra. Um, there's another Zollard, right, which was the Lizard Squad guys, mm-hmm. Bashlight, right. So there's these different families of malware and some actors using them. 
Um, but then you had Mirai kick in, mm -hmm. and uh, that kind of got a lot of media attention. Um, it was also used in some, uh, you know, I can't pretty notable it. attacks. Notable you know, attacks. The ones yeah. that uh, really had, uh, I mean, got public attention. Uh, had some implications on some major services and uh, on the internet. So absolutely. and the the number of devices um, that are you know comprising this botnet, mm -hmm. even though it is kind of a fluctuating, shifting thing as the devices reboot and they might get pulled into somebody else's botnet and these get rebooted and pulled into. But um, there's so many of them mm -hmm. that they really do leverage a significant potential for DDoS attack mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how much uh, traffic they can throw yeah. at a target. Yeah, one of the things I think has been kind of lost in this whole IoT thing is that is the uh, I guess the recognition of the fact that these botnets had already had really been built for the purpose of performing commercialized DDoS attacks. That right. is to charge ten dollars or something to conduct attack an attack for ten minutes against a particular target, and it's predominantly used by folks that are playing video games and want to knock off an opponent. And that's built a commercial industry, and it's literally grown over the last three, four years as basically a, commer a commercial activity. And most of the attacks that people hear about are actually advertising campaigns. That is, they'll go attack a gaming service provider right. and then make some claim about, yes, this is a service that we have, and oh, by the way, you can buy that service. To, uh, to because they're, they're really trying to get the attention of the folks that are playing the video games. Right. They do that by taking the video game service provider offline for, you know, even if it's just for a few seconds, it gets their attention. Right, right. So, uh, and, and I think that's the real uh, sort of, um, you know, kind of, uh, kind of lost in the media coverage of a, a lot of this activity that's been, that's been brewing. So, what do you see is coming for the next year? Well, I mean, I guess, what I would imagine is that things are probably going to get a little bit worse or not really improve in the coming year. Mm -hmm. If I was to look into my crystal ball and hope, it would be that maybe somebody from a legislative standpoint does something to help or governmental tries to help control this a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it's going to improve until vendors who create these devices start to have automated patch processes mm -hmm. and the ability to um, you know, keep them updated and secure yeah. and have good security, just out of the box security um, uh, protections around them. But then we're still gonna have to wait for people who have all these old devices to say, well, this one's old and a piece of junk and I'm gonna upgrade it with this new one that's better, but they don't. the consumer doesn't really care mm -hmm. or they're not thinking, I'm gonna get this one because it's more secure. They're <laughs> just getting it because I can do mm -hmm. you know, 10 more cameras on it mm -hmm. or it's you know, three times as fast as my old one or it's got a better user interface, whatever. Um, and we might have to wait quite a while for all of these ones that are already out there because mm -hmm. nobody knows. You know, they kind of sit there on the network and you don't yeah. know that there's a problem as a consumer yeah. with it. Yeah, I think the, um, so for a lot of the, and one of the things we need to recognize is not all IoT is created the same. Right. Um, and so uh, certainly there are pockets of industry that are driving in the right direction. So for example, the auto ISAC mm -hmm. is developing some security standards for connected car. That's a particular environment where, for example, power isn't the most significant concern, um, but ability to maintain control of the vehicle is. And so it's a good place to have a pretty robust security 
plan around that type of uh, environment. Uh, I think the uh, environment where you have healthcare involved, that is, I think perhaps the inspiration should come from healthcare insurance mm -hmm. companies where the risk of having a device or loss of medical records even perhaps would be something that they would impose some standards on the providers to help control that. So it's an industry-driven activity, which, you know, UL listings for safety of devices actually came through that type. It was underwriters' laboratories. It was the insurance underwriters for homes and, and buildings, they wanted to make sure that they were electrically safe to right. have in homes and we're going to burn fire. them down and end up having to pay insurance claims. So it's that kind of motivation that I think is going to be pretty powerful. What's still a little bit unclear, and, and by the way, I think um, it was just a few weeks ago, Dale Drew, the, the CSO for, from Level 3, uh, you know, major ISP, mm -hmm testified before Congress on the topic of how to deal with this IoT thing and what the, uh, the threat was. And actually, I think the, uh, the feedback, as I heard it, was that they're not really looking to do a legislative thing. That would be sort of a last resort approach to things. The hope is that we can find the right kinds of incentives to be able to have the, the sort of the industry regu regulate itself. And so I think it really needs, I mean, just a, uh, it just for fear of the safety of devices, hopefully the uh, retail industry can rally around itself and impose some uh, of the right motivations and controls. And I think they need to be basic, you know, minimum controls, things like no default passwords. You can't install the device in an insecure state by accident. Um, if vulnerabilities are identified, you need to have a patch management process and a place to contact to be able to uh, report vulnerabilities and, and um, you know, some basic controls like that. I had a list of about eight different things that um, actually originally when I posted the, the blog was in 2012. Uh, or, and there were six of them and a couple of them been ads, added since then. One was that no unnecessary services should be exposed right. to the internet, like which Telnet. is in fact one of the cases that showed up with these, uh, the recent um, the, the uh, TR064 right. exploit that was, you know, landside protocols that were exposed to the internet and ultimately right. on a, yes. anybody. A small, well I shouldn't say small, but on a discrete number of yes. vendors had on a discrete that, number of, yeah, yeah, had but, on their hardware that exposed, but not, you know, in mass. Yeah. It was but a, enough a that it made a big deal, you know? Absolutely. And yeah. especially with these embedded devices, we're finding now, I would say in the past couple of months, that not only are they just doing brute force password guessing against like Telnet and SSH, which is the remote console way in, but they're looking for alternative methods, you know, exploits that they can leverage against this pool of devices mm -hmm. to get more devices into their botnet. So, um, there's more than just, not to say that they're going to go away from the brute forcing angle, but mm -hmm. they're looking for every method possible to get all those stragglers that they can't guess the password yeah. on, but maybe have some other vulnerability that they can mm -hmm. get right into it. So your prediction is the IoT activity is going to continue here? Uh, I would say yes. Yes. Yeah. It, you know, the question is, has this thing, you know, we were talking about sort of that sweet spot. Is this something that's gotten enough attention that enough action is going to be taken to basically curtail that, or perhaps it's going to just take more than a year to get that done. Well, I would argue that ransomware and some of these other things got high profile media attention when they first really came to light to everybody. Mm -hmm. And then the media kind of said, oh, we don't care about this anymore. Yeah. And they don't cover it, but it's still going on and nothing mm -hmm. got fixed. 
And in fact, in certain cases, it might even be worse because there's more victims in the ransomware mm -hmm. space than there were when it was first reported, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of the number of victims. Okay, good observation. Total. So I don't Absolutely. know, uh, you know. Okay. I worry that people are gonna, yeah. you know, ignore it after the, you know, dust settles. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Todd? Yeah, I think there's a couple of interesting things about IoT. Not only the, the availability issues we talked about, denial of service and compromise. I think there's the two that I think about. Uh, one is certainly personal information, right? As we continue to expand the footprint of these IoT devices in our, in our homes, um, I think we're going to see more and more uh, breaches of personal information and, and confidential data of, of consumers out there. Mm -hmm. I think the other one that we haven't really focused on much, even though it's part of the triad, right, is the data integrity. So as you have all these sensors collecting all this data, going into lakes and business logistics or transportation or whatever it is, is, is driven off of the data that these sensors are creating, you know, mm -hmm. adversaries could, instead of taking them offline or, you, you know, using the resources, what if you corrupt that data? What if you, you uh, mess with the integrity of that? And then now you've got organizations making decisions off of bad data, which could have, you know, even a greater impact. So I think there's going to be a renewed focus on, on data integrity as we uh, continue to expand IoT. Yeah, absolutely. Those are very legitimate points. You know, the uh, the tension has been all around the denial of service attacks. You know, when there's a denial of service attack, it's a pretty obvious thing. You know, services go down, you know, and it, you know, it's a lot of traffic on the network. There, you know, it creates a lot of hoopla. Some of the subtle things that perhaps could be going on behind the scenes that are noticed is, you know, extraction of data from these devices. It may be very difficult to determine where that data came from or where it was stolen from unless somebody is able to basically capture a repository associated with one of those particular botnets. I'm not aware of any one of those cases. We've definitely seen cases in the past where they've been used for, like, Dogecoin mining and other virtual mm -hmm. cur currency. And uh, you know those types of things. So they're basically just stealing the compute resources. Um, we had talked with a customer some time ago that uh, they said, "Oh, well, maybe the fact that this device was infected was the reason it didn't capture those robbers that robbed our place yeah, a couple a, of times." Yeah, relatively small convenience store. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so those kinds of cir circumstances uh, pop up. So, uh, absolutely a good point. Todd, we need to be paying attention to what might be going on behind the scenes and less noticeable uh, associated with the, these types of devices. So Stan, what's your prediction for 2017? Uh, let me start it as an observation mm -hmm. from 2016. <laughs> <laughs> and to have a basis for your prediction is actually a very good thing. It's very scientific uh, of you. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I think um, so let me just describe how, you know, what I was thinking. Uh, so as re reviewing this Mirai botnet and everything related to it, I happened upon this article that uh, was pretty big about the Mirai botnet taking down like a small nation in Africa. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, with the kind of research we do here, that kind of immediately made me start thinking and researching and digging in. and. I just, the more I dug, the less I found uh, <laughs> of evidence of this attack. And uh, before I knew it, I was also following the news and it seemed like this whole story blew up and every, there was like an echo chamber effect where everybody was reporting that Mirai is taking down Africa. Taking down countries. A now. whole yeah, country right. now without an ISP service and just major outage. Nobody can use and the internet. And continued for weeks, right? Uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just couldn't find this evidence. And I, I was scratching my head, what am I missing? You know, what's wrong with the research tools I have? 
Um, and then I think what I realized is that maybe the source of the information or the prediction just wasn't as credible, or not that it wasn't credible, it might have been an opinion of mm -hmm. somebody yeah. uh, based on an observation they made with the information they had, but it wasn't credibly checked out the way it should have been probably. Yeah. It's like a game of telephone. Yeah. It's a game right. of telephone. So it's, it's exaggerated a, more and more. It's a case, and yeah. It just got exaggerated, exactly. And it took a while for somebody credible to actually make a post and says, hey, guys, what's going on? I haven't mm -hmm. seen any evidence of this. Um, and there's actually, uh, I think, Brian Krebs, who wrote an article that said, hey, I, I don't see any evidence of this. Mm -hmm. And then I knew, I, you know, now I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> uh, Brian Krebs agrees with you. Yeah, now I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> uh, but this kind of notion, it's not something new. You know, this happens yeah. all the time where I guess news stories get start getting exaggerated yeah. and the person who heard it from somebody else or aggregated the information is now paraphrasing it. And before mm -hmm. you know it, it evolves into this thing. So I think in 2017, you know, that's probably going to continue as it has mm -hmm. before. It's not that it's going to be a big thing. All of a sudden we're mm -hmm. going to see like fake news stories, not more than any mm -hmm. time previous. It's just something to pay attention to. I think when mm -hmm. I first started out and, um, you know, the space of computer security, I, I spent a lot of time reading news articles mm -hmm. and information that researchers put out there because I found it to be a valuable source of information for what's going on in the industry. You know, mm -hmm. things like even like the show uh, that I would watch or see, just to understand what's happening, what I should be paying attention to. I found it very valuable. But I think as you do that, you kind of have to understand where the information is coming from or who is the source? Is it a primary source, a secondary source? Mm -hmm. Just like you would in any research. You know, it's not something new, I'm not you know, saying anything that no, anybody hasn't heard before. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just gonna be as important to kind of know where you're getting your information and just make sure you understand, is it like an assessment? Is it mm -hmm. an opinion or is it fact? Um, and use that to guide your decisions, uh, yeah. especially if you're making uh, you know, big decisions. Absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the, uh, I, in my personal opinion is that I think the means for providing accurate news information on the internet is still growing up. And it's perhaps in the adolescent phase. And I think one of the, challenge that, the challenges that fundamentally exists is anybody can be providing information. And there are good sources, there are bad sources, or there, and it, as you had suggested, there's that echo factor, that telephone, game of telephone effect, that is somebody may be reporting something because somebody else is reporting. The first one, you know, the analogy would be, you know, somebody says, well, this is 91% so, and the next one says, it's almost entirely so, and then the next one says, it's 100% so, you know, and you end up with this exaggeration, not by malicious intent, but just by, the, uh, the development or, and, you know, rather than plagiarizing, kind of embellishing on the, the original statement. Right. And the challenge I think fundamentally that exists is, you know, whereas traditionally we had gone to basically some standard sources of news and information, whether it was true or not, was actually kind of irrelevant because it was the only source that over time what's happened is now anybody can be a source of information and now the established, more popular news sources are having to compete with them in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, basically capturing people's interest. And it's that capturing people's interest to try to take things just a little bit further 
and it's a, it's a bit of a challenge. So I think, I think this is going to mature over time, but I suspect it's going to get worse before it gets better. And uh, I think that uh, is influencing the way people are thinking. It needs to, uh, it needs to mature. It needs to mature. And this is, uh, this is relevant from a security standpoint, because as we look at security, we need to be able to consider what threats are the real threats to be, to be dealing with and focus our efforts, our priorities on dealing with those real threats. Right, exactly. It's, it's a, again, like you kind of mentioned about, you know, everybody's laser focused on this DDoS. But mm -hmm. what are they missing with having these infected devices on the most vulnerable of their core network? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Back in the day, probably, even today, uh, adversaries are probably thinking up ways, how do I get inside that network? And here's, you know, 350,000 or more devices just mm -hmm. waiting for you to come in and wreak havoc. Mm -hmm. And I'll add one more variation. You had good sources and bad sources, but there's also compromised sources. So like, you know, a few years back, we saw Syrian Electronic Army compromise the Twitter feeds of some reputable sources. I can't mm -hmm. remember if it was Associated Press or who it was, but, and they tweeted things, you know, I think they tweeted that the president had been killed and the stock market yeah, and took a dive that is for military. That is intentional malicious fake yes. news, yes. But what I'm saying is, yep. is, even though, you know, some sources are good and some are bad, the good sources aren't always necessarily right, and mm -hmm. you have to kind of think, I mean, I don't know how you vet this, but just because they say it doesn't mean it really came from them. Mm -hmm. um, That's absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's tricky. And there, well, and yeah, there are a lot of controls that need to be, this is, I think, part of the, mat the maturing of the internet in general and, right. and as a, a source of news information. Todd, do you have any comment? I think it's spot on. I mean, it's, 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 I think the challenge is it's always gonna be up to the individual to really believe what they read anyway. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's going to be tough to get to those legitimate sources, but uh, to your point, the more research you can do around a particular thing before you start playing the telephone game, you know, obviously the better off you're going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally speaking, when you read something that, uh, I'll leave that. Okay, very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's like those great memes, uh, memes on the, uh, of Abraham Lincoln telling you not to believe everything on the internet, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Todd, let's go to you here. What do you uh, What do you think is going to happen in the next uh, year or so here that we should be paying attention to? Yeah. Well, if you know, basing predictions off of uh, historical information is good, then I think I'm all set here because <laughs> I think we're going to continue to see uh, cardholder data fraud uh, throughout the uh, the ecosystem. You know, we had uh, the big push for EMV. We had a deadline of 2017. Visa's now moved that out to 2020. Um, and uh, quite honestly, we're, we have just conditioned uh, consumers who just walk in and swipe all the time, right? So mm -hmm. um, we were hoping to reduce the amount of fraud we'd see on cardholder data, at least squeeze the balloon. We knew that when we got it off of the card present transactions, we'd see more on the card not present, but, you know, that would still be less than the card present fraud. Um, but, you know, the challenge is, as you all know, you go into an environment that's taking chip and swipe and everybody swipes first. So we've, you know, mm -hmm. still seen fraud on chip-enabled transactions because the consumer goes in and swipes and said, oh, no, it's, I've got a dip, and then dips. But if there's malware on that reader, then they've already captured the cardholder data, and you've got that correlation between the chip-enabled transaction and the fraud. So I, we've got to get to one solution. We've got to get it cleaned up. And, and I'm surprised still that I go into major retailers, uh, franchise environments, then they're still not chip-enabled yet. So uh, we'll continue to see uh, cardholder data fraud in the card present environment uh, before it trickles completely over to the card not present. All right. In the meantime, dip your chip first. <laughs> Don't double dip. 
if it don't double. <laughs> and uh, only swipe upon request. All right, very good. <laughs> you know, I, I agree with you, Todd. You know, this is uh, this is an obvious uh, case here. You know, I gave uh, I gave I guess Matt's prediction for 2016 for the continuation of of the uh, point of sale threat as a uh, I kind of gave him a mediocre grade. It probably wasn't fair. I guess Stan, you 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 convinced me to upgrade it to a B, and uh, I think that really has to do with the fact that this is a case where it continues on but it really isn't getting the press coverage. And so I think folks have kind of lost, that is in the public, the general public has kind of lost a sense of what the threat really is and that it's, uh, that it's continuing. And you know, we continue to see even what I find to be fascinatingly sophisticated threats against ATMs. Yes. And, uh, and I think uh, Brian Krebs just had a demonstration for a, um, uh, basically a uh, card reader device that actually inserts into the ATM. It's just a little, little card, you know, kind of slides sleeve. It just slides right inside there. Completely disappears inside the card reader, and so you can't. There's no way you can visually uh, find it. And then they had this little tool that extracts the thing out later with all the card information stolen, uh, stolen card information mm. stored on it. Uh, really fascinating to the level of sophistication that's being that's. Uh, that's going into this type of thing, and it's because they're able to earn fraudulent revenue from doing that. So that reminds me of the story where they had the extra long PCP boards that were mm -hmm. able to reach back into the ATM and like update the firmware mm -hmm. through the credit card slot. Yeah, yeah, so just as devious. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, the shelf life of cardholder data has gone down, right? I mean, they're identifying yeah. fraud pretty quickly, shutting those cards down. So, you know, you move to the next target, and ATMs are a great space to go after. Yep. So I think you have a pretty accurate prediction there that's going to continue to go on until, um, you know, I think there, ultimately, I think there's going to be a, a revamp in the industry in general. But in the meantime, hopefully we can uh, stay, of stay above. And, you know, I guess the important part here is if anybody suspects that they've been a victim of, um, of fraudulent card transactions is to report them right away because that helps to uh, get in a position where you can get the issue corrected and then uh, uh, minimize the amount of liability to a consumer at least. Yeah, yeah it was one of the recommendations I make is, you know, get, if you can get a separate card for all of your auto payment stuff, because mm -hmm. that's really the pain for the consumer, right? You have a breach, you lose your card, you gotta remember, all right, I got Amazon, I got Netflix, I got my water bill, I got this, I got that. You know, keep that separate from the cards you're gonna walk around with and maybe use in an environment that could be contaminated. Um, and that way, if you do have an impact, maybe the, the level of effort to, to mitigate is low for the, the end user. Mm -hmm. All right. Good recommendation. So my prediction here has to do with basically, I mean, we've talked about a couple of cases here where the, um, the, the, the real motivation is monetization. Mm -hmm. That is to get, one is the IoT thing is, is really built up to commercialize denial of service attacks. They're earning money from connecting denial of service attacks. Um, actually, there's probably a monetization around fake news, trying to get those clicks onto the websites to be able to get those sensational stories out there and, and uh, attract folks in. Um, not necessarily malicious per se, you know, things to be on the fringe. We just talked about the uh, uh, card fraud, uh, you know, credit card theft, information theft. Um, mine has to do with the basically a, a general area where virtualized currency allows for anonymous transactions. And so some of the basic scams that have taken place, well, first of all, most of the denial of service attack services are purchased through 
um, uh, uh, virtual currency to help anonymize right. the, uh, the organization that's receiving those funds, um, and perhaps to anonymize the folks that are purchasing the attacks. Uh, in this particular case, we've seen ransomware has been a big user of that. Uh, DDoS attacks for extortion that is threatening to attack an organization uh, and you know requesting a, uh, a extortion payment associated with that. Uh, there's certainly the potential, and I have not seen any specific cases like this, but there's certainly the potential that somebody could uh, trick somebody into making payments. Uh, there certainly have been similar cases like that, I guess, where not using virtual currency, where they've uh, tried to convince uh, somebody that a message came from the CEO to make a bank transfer payment right. to another organization, and it's, you know, it's going into some anonymous bank account. So that's actually a bank-to-bank -bank transaction, not really a technically a virtual currency. But things like Bitcoin allow anonymous transactions. I think the, um, the notion of um, using that in more creative ways to, uh, to get that monetary benefit for the attackers is going to not just continue, but expand to more things than we've seen today. See that go to the consumer level as well, right? If we tie that back to the IoT issue and we have more and more of these connected devices, likelihood of compromise into residential environments because of them, connected mm -hmm. webcams that are hooked up to laptops or computers, right? I think we start mm -hmm. seeing that extortion move. Yes, yeah, it's absolutely true. You know, the um, I, I think one of the aspects of this is that in order to get that virtual currency payment, the end users have to have adopted the virtual currency, and but that's starting to become more popular. That is, the uh, younger generation is starting to accept that. I know of uh, there are bars that uh, accept virtual currency payment, and um, and so as that becomes more adopted, the opportunity to use it in scams becomes more prevalent. Yeah, and I was kind of surprised at how easy it is to use Bitcoin on your mobile device for transactions and whatnot. So a lot mm -hmm. of, you know, places that accept Bitcoin, you know, brick and mortar, you can use, uh, you can exchange Bitcoin via mm -hmm. mobile devices, which is kind of cool. Yeah, very cool. That's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. We hope that we got some of the predictions uh, pretty accurate. I think we did. I think we're somewhat safe. And that's well, going to be A's all, all around. Are you kidding me? Next A's year when we review? Next year. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, if you have any thoughts on your predictions or uh, perhaps some commentary on the predictions that we have, please contact us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel. It's on YouTube as well as in iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. So Todd, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate your expertise in these topics. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Yep. Uh, Stan, thank you for joining today. Thank you for John, thank you for joining. Yep. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode and in the new year. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants.